Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read John chapter 6, verses 35 through 69, which is 10 verses beyond the narrative lectionary, because we just couldn't help ourselves. Why does Jesus lean so hard into the shocking language that his followers ought to eat his flesh and drink his blood? What is it about food as a universal human need and also as an appetite that can go way beyond need that opens up what Jesus is asking of his followers? Does the metaphor suggest an elevation of spiritual needs in place of physical ones? Or does it wrap them ever more closely together? This teaching is difficult, say the disciples. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Amy. How are you this week? What's up? I have uh, my four-year-old. She has an invisible friend whose name is Ornery Mouse. (laughs) And (laughs) he's like, he shows up whenever (laughs) she's done something that she should not have done, like she's made a mess or she's done whatever. And I'm like, how did that happen? And she's like, it's ornery mouse. And then I'll say, why did he, why did he do that? And she'll say, because he's ornery. (laughs) And it makes me laugh so much. And today I feel like I'm kind of inhabiting ornery mouse a little bit. Like I feel just a slightly bit or a slight bit ornery. This, I don't know if this is good news or bad news for our listeners, because I definitely felt preparing for our session like I needed to like take a break and find a Xanax like (laughs) yeah I I'm feeling a little like you know hair trigger situation here so I don't know maybe we'll lose our minds today that might be fun might be fun yeah I mean I think it's a combination of this world situation and also yes this is a hard text that we're reading and here in John 6 and the you know the I am the bread of life like there's a lot going on And I will say, as we will see in the part at the end of this text that we're actually going to add, because we like to add things, people get mad at Jesus and a bunch of them leave. And so I think being a little ornery about what's in this text is true to the text, yeah, not just true to our own sort of moment in life. To our own ornery selves. Yeah. Ornery mouse definitely would have left. (laughs) Why'd you leave, ornery mouse? Because I'm ornery. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that's fantastic. So as you mentioned, we are reading the I Am the Bread of Life text, which is John chapter 6. The narrative lectionary gives us verses 35 through 59. The Bible Worm Collaborative thought we should extend that a bit. Yeah. Because there's some text after that 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 seems important. So we're going to extend all the way, another 10 verses, to verse 69. And because that's never enough— I mean, this this text just has like tentacles in both directions. It does. You know, it's and I don't think we can. <laughs> having tried to do this and telling you it didn't work, I can tell you I don't think we should read this story without 
understanding a little bit about the text that comes before yeah. it, which is that famous yeah. feeding of the 5,000. So can you orient us there a little bit? I can. Yeah, that's really helpful. You, you know, because this what we're getting today is the discourse on bread or something is yeah. normally yeah. called. Yeah. But it is quite famously in the Gospel of John, there's this thing that John does where he takes I am statements. And we talked about that a little bit in our last episode about Jesus said, she said, the Messiah is coming, the Samaritan mm-hmm. woman did. And he said, mm-hmm. I am. And we talked a little yeah. bit about yep. how that connects to Exodus 3 and mm-hmm. the divine revelation of the of the name. There is this phenomenon in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes these I am statements that then have a predicate, which is associated most often with some other story in the gospel. So here it's I am the bread of life. He also, Jesus also says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the door for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. There's seven different versions of this in the gospel of John. And Jesus's statement about who he is, I'm the bread of life, is working out the significance of a sign that he does. In this case, the feeding of the 5,000. So these two are intrinsically connected. The miracle that Jesus performs is a way of explaining what does it mean that I'm the bread of life. The bread of life discourse is a way of saying, well, here's what that looks like in practice. So you really can't talk about them without without talking about uh, the other. The, the quick version, I mean, people I think who are at least readers of the New Testament are familiar with the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is teaching. And really, if you haven't read it, you should read it. Yeah, absolutely. You should read it. The short version of the story is Jesus is out uh, teaching the people and the day is getting late. And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, we need to feed this crowd. And they say, how are we How are we going to do it, right? And they say, all we've got is these five loaves of bread and two fish that this little kid brought with them. And Jesus says, bring mm-hmm. that to me. And he blesses it. And then they pass it out to the crowd and it feeds these little five uh, loaves of bread and two fish, feed the entire crowd. So there's this sort of miraculous multiplication of the food. Interestingly, in the Gospel of John, at the end of that story, this is a detail that's not in the other Gospels, the people want to make Jesus their king. Like, like we love this food mm-hmm. thing, and so we want to make you king. And so the story says Jesus took refuge again, which means he ran away. Yeah, they want to, like, capture him and make him king. Like, forcibly make yeah. him king. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a fascinating detail. And Jesus is not having any of that, the forcefulness or the kingness. (laughs) And so he says, he runs away and says, no, 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 this is like, yes, I can do this bread thing, but this is not the reason to make me your king. Okay, I just need to say, I loved how you opened with those statements about I am, um, and that took it to a level that I hadn't quite understood it before. And it also, in important ways, tied to your identifying yourself with ornery mouse. (laughs) So we can just sit with the I am ordinary mouse. Yeah. Of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, great. Okay. So, ordinary mouse, we are going to start in verse uh, 35 of chapter six. And I'm reading from the NRSV. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, and all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the first question I want to ask you is, is the connection between the, the story of the feeding the 5,000 yeah. and this statement, I am the bread of life. Yeah. Why does this conversation start with literally giving people bread, like the other kind of bread? Does this conversation have to start yeah. with that bread? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And the way that the narrative lectionary has set it up is to suggest that it doesn't actually have to do with that bread. I mean, the narrative lectionary is not saying yeah. that, but by leaving out that first part, yeah. It's kind of saying, like, we can understand what's going on here without the literal bread. Yeah. If you don't know that story already and you're not reading it in light of that story, then then you sort of skip then past And you don't that. need it. Mm-hmm. I myself think you do need it. And that's why, you know, Jesus now is saying this after the bread miracle. And and so we need to read and so we need to read the two together. The other piece that's in here, I'm sure that that you hear is, you know, just a couple of verses earlier, the people say, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so there's, so the bread discourse has in mind the feeding of the 5,000, which has in mind Exodus 16, which we read earlier this year, and the feeding of the people. And so all of that, I think, has to be part of this conversation. And to to even add... I don't know, more more thickness or resonance to it, although not to this metaphor in particular. The relationship between, so I'm wondering if the relationship between the, the, the physical feeding of people and this idea of Jesus as the bread of life, it's tying in my mind to the conversation we had recently about healing stories. Mm. And that for the person, the miracle is the actual healing. Yeah. For Jesus, it's not really about that specific healing. It's more like a recognition that this is how you will get people to pay attention to what you're yeah. saying. Does that connection make sense to you? That connection absolutely makes sense to me. So how do you get somebody to listen to a discourse about I'm the bread of life? Well, right. you feed them miraculously with five yeah. loaves of bread and two fish. Now you have their attention. Now right. they want to make you the king, right? And so uh, and so now you can talk to people because it's been dramatic. So yes. Yeah. And also, I think that the way I want to read this anyway is not just that the sort of material miracle is a way of getting you to pay attention to the spiritual miracle, but that these two are in fact part of the same. They're inseparable from one another. So the physical feeding of the physical body with physical bread and the spiritual feeding of the spiritual self with spiritual bread are can't be pulled apart. So you you couldn't talk about spiritual bread without oh. also talking about physical bread. You've got to talk about you've got to talk about both or else you're doing something different than what Jesus is up to in the Gospel of John, I think. Well, that's interesting. I'm gonna put that in my back pocket and see how that plays out. I like that idea. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to have to hold on to it yeah. as we read to see if I see if I see it as strongly as you do. Yeah, I'll try to tease that out where I see it. And then yeah. I'm, I'm really interested whether you think it goes there or, or, or not. 
Okay, so Jesus opens with this powerful statement, I am the bread of life. Yeah. And this promise that whoever comes will never be hungry, will never be thirsty. Which, by the way, reminds me a little bit of this living waters yeah, story that we also read. Although I don't think Jesus said, I am living waters. I think it was, I have living That's waters. That's it. I, I give you living that. water. Yeah. I give you living mm-hmm. water. Yeah. So after this statement, this big statement in verse 35 from Jesus, we have a couple of verses that go back to this idea of what people have sort of the capacity to believe, the willingness yeah. to believe, and how you how some people seem to have that capacity and some people don't. Mm-hmm. Can you, I mean, what do you, it seems to say in verses 36 to 38 that, you know, Jesus can see that not everyone believes mm-hmm. and that that God decides who will believe and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Is that what you see in there? Yeah, this idea of belief in the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this. I'm sure we have, but I'm not done, clearly. No, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's like, it's one of those things that John is trying to work out all the way through his Gospel. And so it keeps coming up and we keep saying like, wait, what does this add to our understanding? Like, I think that's maybe as it should be and maybe as John wants it to be. The idea of belief I think for John is not simply about sort of a cognitive assent, you know, yeah, oh yeah. yes, I acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God, but is about this, this language that we've had about abiding, Jesus abides in you and you abide in him, that it's, it's about inhabiting Jesus and having Jesus inhabit you, this idea of being born mm-hmm. again into a different way of being in the world. That's what belief mm-hmm. I think means for John. It's a mm-hmm. it's a life altering thing. Yeah. Both yeah. in the spiritual intellectual sense and also in the material sense of how you live in the world. And it seems to it's been pretty clear, I mean even since the prologue that not everybody is going to be able to get on board with this shift. And so yeah. Jesus comes to what's his and some people accept, some people reject. We we saw that all the way back in John 1. We saw it last week. Was it last week? No, it was uh, in John 3 and all the all the stuff about God loved the world, sent Jesus to save the world, not to judge it, but people are already judged because they can't get on board. Yeah. In my mind, this is another, this is another aspect of that. One of the interesting things to me here is, you know, so the people refer back to the manna in the wilderness and they say, they quote a psalm-ish that says he gave them bread from heaven to eat. God gave them bread. And Jesus is not saying, here, I'm going to give you bread, although that's what Jesus has just done in the previous miracle. But then Jesus takes it a step further and says, I am the bread, right? I'm not just the one who can give you bread, although I am that, but I am the bread. And, you know, and we'll have to get into this idea about what does it mean to eat Jesus (laughs) at at all of these things. But I do think that is part of this, right? That you have to, allow Jesus to become that which gives you life, which animates your life in order for this to have effect. And not everyone, not everyone's able to do that. Yeah. I love this image in, in 39 that, you know, that it's God's will that Jesus should not lose anything that has been given to him, but raise it up on the last day. And, you know, when I first read it, when I first read this through, not sort of knowing where this conversation was going to where this text was going to go ultimately, I was, <laughs> I was thinking of it as <laughs> Jesus's own 
body. Mm -hmm. It's like Jesus caring for Jesus's own body. But then, you know, going back to it later, I was, of course, thinking about it as like the people who have, who have been able to believe. Mm -hmm. And I almost picture like, like Jesus, like, (laughs) okay, this is weird. Running like an obstacle course and having like these, (laughs) you know, gold coins in his pockets. And like you cross, like you run through the, the torments of the world. And then you cross the finish line to the final day and you hold them up. Like I made it with them, which is a little ridiculous, but but this idea that like you're you're sort of being carried along through this yeah. ridiculous set of obstacles and you're just a coin in someone's pocket like you couldn't mm. possibly navigate those obstacles yeah. on your own and so you have to totally trust that if you have if it is determined that you're going to be in Jesus's pocket that's a good place to be like you'll you'll make it across the finish line yeah i think that's i mean <laughs> that is first of all. You're like, I think that's weird. A but metaphor I've never heard before. It's shocking. <laughs> but I think that is what John is saying. That there like this possibility of eternal life, the possibility of a transformed present life is something that at one level we can't achieve for ourselves, right? It, it's mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. God offers mm-hmm. to us in Jesus. This notion of who is whoever is given to Jesus, Jesus won't drop them or lose them. Mm-hmm. Is the I mean one of the ways that that is said, and you know the the way that you put it in the in this metaphor is like a coin doesn't have a choice about whether to get in your pocket or not, right? <laughs> you you mm-hmm. pick it up, and so that so if you read it that way, then it takes all our agency completely away, right? We either are picked yeah. up or we're not. And also, this gospel seems to be putting in front of people a choice, kind of regularly, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. are you going to join this way? Are you going to abide in me Mm -hmm. and I in you, or are you not? And so the relationship between choice and sovereign decision is a complicated one. And, you know, in the Christian tradition widely construed, this is an ongoing debate about to what extent can we we choose to get in Jesus's pocket and to what extent can we not? My own tradition is leans on the side of God, God saves who God will save. And, you know, we we need to be transformed by that, right? Being you don't just rattle around in God's pocket, but like you like live your life in response to you know yeah. God's choosing. But ultimately, you couldn't have made that choice yourself. That's where my tradition, mm-hmm. Presbyterian Reformed tradition, ends up. But that's not where all mm-hmm. Christian traditions mm-hmm. end up. Yeah, it is really I think interesting throughout this text that that we're reading together to see how that. I feel like there is a little dance even within yeah. this text itself about where is your autonomy and where do you really have no yeah no autonomy mm-hmm. yeah i think so and in my head just because i am who i am as a person and also as a theologian i go back to john 3:16 when i read this for god so loved mm-hmm. the world and mm-hmm. god enters into the world not to judge but to show compassion yeah. one way of working that out is that god's intent is actually to save the world not mm-hmm. to save part of the world. And therefore, when Jesus says, those who are given to me, I'm not going to lose them. One way of reading that is God is positively disposed to the whole world and therefore Jesus isn't going to lose anybody. Maybe that's wishful thinking on my part. And maybe even in this text at the end, <laughs> it doesn't turn, turn out quite that way. But uh, that part of the way that I read is, God, you know, if God's desire is to move toward the world in love and Jesus is playing that out, then some way or another then it needs to work out that God is actually in the process of of saving the world and not just a select few. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Should we move on? I think so. It gets more complicated. It does. Okay, good. So I'm picking up then at verse 41. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay. You know, picking up on that, that conversation we were just having about sort of relative autonomy versus not so much autonomy. Yeah. Look at these verses, like 44 and 45, I guess. I don't know. Okay, so let me say in 45 has a quote in it from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 54, Mm -hmm. which is a chapter that is, you know, speaking to the uncomforted, sort of offering comfort and offering honor to people who have, who are not comfortable at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And says, all your children shall be disciples of the Lord. I see in here, and tell me if you see this too, I see a little more of like a pointedness, not just like God will choose who God will choose and Mm -hmm. those will be the the people who can follow Jesus, but whoever has learned and heard from God, those are the people who are invited. So if, if you're not invited, it's because you were never really learning from God in the first place. I, I really like that. Like I'm having to pause and think through, like I'm clicking through like all of my systematic theology courses and all of these things. Like John really is working on this kind of theological, philosophical, metaphysical level. Maybe I should ask instead, what do you think is added or tweaked or spun slightly differently in this next step in the conversation? Well, I really liked where you were headed actually. And, and I think it's right that those who hear the word of God, that's how they get drawn to God. And that's how they get put in Jesus's pocket, <laughs> right? That's how they get yeah. raised up on the last day. And so there, we have that passage in Isaiah that said, my word goes out and it accomplishes that for which I sent it, right? And so the proclamation of the word is the thing which motivates people. In the first part of John, it was come and see, right? Uh, you mm-hmm. hear a thing, you just want to know. The same thing happened mm-hmm. with the Samaritan woman at the well. She went, she told her story to her people. They're like, oh, that's an interesting story. Like, we want to know more about that. So they come. And then, you know, like there's an initial drawing in of people. So I think that's a totally, I actually think that's a really good reading of this text is those who listen to the word, they get interested. And those are the people who then God can draw in. And so then, mm-hmm. you know, I guess if you work that out in the other direction, those people who are not interested in listening to the word of God, there's nothing that God can do, can do or at least is going so, to do yeah right about that 
Right. And so what that becomes in my ears as a Jewish reader is sort of like, if if you don't feel this pull towards faith in Jesus, you wouldn't you weren't a real very good Jew either. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty like damning. Like, <laughs> like it's not that there are two, it's not that there are options here. Not that I expected there to be options, yeah. but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been struggling with that because I mean I I love reading. This, these texts with you because they make me think about that. Like, right, what what do I do with this text in light of the fact that I'm going to read this text with Amy? And and what is this text saying about Amy? <laughs> and how is she going to yeah. respond to it? And it really creates interesting challenges for me. And I mean, at some point, I think you we just have to say, like, this is what John thought. And yeah. we can think something else, <laughs> right? So let's try to understand what John thought. And then let's think about what we think about what John thought. And I, totally legitimate. One of the things that I think is happening in this little section, so we had I'm the bread before, and now we've got, we're starting to get this idea of the bread that comes down from heaven in the flesh. And that has been crucial to John since the very beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among them. And so the way that I read that is there is a way of being a follower of God that is a purely spiritual following of God. And then there is a way of following God that is an enfleshed following of God. And I think what John is trying to do here is to say, you are only really following God if your following of God is enfleshed, if it is embodied. He seems to think that only people who see how Jesus is embodying the word of God are able themselves to embody the word of God, right? And until you've seen and understood that Jesus is the Torah lived out, you can't live it out. We might go there with John. And I mean, that's where John wants us to go, I think. We might also say, look, I mean, just on our special episode a few days ago, we were talking to Laura Kahn, who, Mm -hmm. based on her reading of the Torah, lives out the word in very enfleshed ways. And so maybe we would want to say there are other ways. Like what really matters is that you live out the Torah in embodied ways in the world. John thinks you only do that if you understand Jesus. And we might agree with him or we might not agree with him, but we can go with him a certain certain part of the way. And then we might say, look, no, um, Jesus is not the only way to do this. Or we might say, yes, our experience is that Jesus is the only way, which is where John wants us to go. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I I mean, I appreciate, I guess, as a, as a friend and a colleague that it— <laughs> that you feel some discomfort at the thought of me having to read this text. And also we've, you know, we are of different faiths and like, that's, it's, it's, we're supposed to have different beliefs. So, I mean, I, I, maybe I've mentioned on, on this show before that when I studied with John Levinson at Harvard, who is a, an Orthodox man himself and who is involved in a lot of interfaith conversation, he said and it has really stuck with me. The stickiness in interfaith conversation is when people aren't sure what they believe or they they believe that someone else might convince them of something or they're trying to convince the other person of something. Like if both people feel comfortable in what they believe, then from his in his experience, there shouldn't be there shouldn't be a problem. Now, yeah. I mean, sometimes I feel a problem, but that that is my aspiration or maybe I just don't feel as clear as he does and so that creates yeah. a problem. I don't know. Yeah, I mean John is saying some things that are hard. Like if John were in an interfaith dialogue, 
his strength would be that he says what he thinks, right? Yeah. And the, yeah. his problem would be that he's not always very careful about creating space for other people to think differently than, than he does. Yeah. But, you know, we've had a couple conversations along the way about this idea that, you know, what John is saying is that Jesus is the word, which is the, I think, which is the Torah, like the preexistent Torah. That is Jesus for John. And we've also talked about how, say, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel also thought that the people were unable to follow the written Torah. And so the way God's solution to that was, I'm going to put, I'm going to sprinkle your heart clean and put a new spirit Mm -hmm. in you and give you a new heart. Mm -hmm. And you're going to live it out. Mm -hmm. This idea that John is working with is actually not that different than the idea Mm -hmm. that Ezekiel was working with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Except what he has said is this word that Ezekiel was thinking about is embodied in this person, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually go a really long way with John without, I think, really violating anything about sort of Jewish tradition until you get to the point like, okay, Torah embodied in yeah, Jesus. Yeah, there's a point where you have to, part- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing about like, it's not really faith unless it's embodied and you can't do it yourself. You know, it takes God's action toward you to get you to the yeah. point where you can live out the Torah the way you're supposed to. And even like, in in my experience, the Jewish tradition is much more clear about there are certain ways you are supposed to live your life if you believe the Torah. Some versions of Christianity seem to be, if you believe in Jesus, like that's all you really need. And like how you live your life based on your belief in Jesus, like that doesn't matter. And so, you know, I I think there's things that both traditions bring that are that are useful yeah. maybe for the other. Yeah, yes. No, and um, you know, as I was reading this text, I was thinking of the Ezekiel text where he eats a scroll. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like that it's the it's that same yep. metaphor. It comes, it becomes a part of you and comes to life in yeah. you and your life becomes it. And yeah. 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 A lot of resonance. Okay, but I, I have some I have questions for you. At the end of this text that we just read, starting around verse 49. We get, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Yeah. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll i admit, I got really annoyed. <laughs> like that was my main feeling was annoyance. Yeah. Because what I read this as is sort of like, I don't know, word games or like the yeah. Jews who ate the manna died literally. Yeah but you won't die metaphorically, but you actually will die literally. Or is there a claim, or is there some other claim in here? Well, so, and I think the way that you're reading it is right. Jesus here is thinking about eternal life beyond the- He's talking about something different. The embodied life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about John having what we call a realized eschatology, that that he thinks the eternal life has already begun, right? So eternal life, not necessarily in the sense of like Mm -hmm. eternal longevity, but like the real essence of life. You can go ahead and start living that now. And then you physically die, and then there is this extended eternal life on the other side. And he thinks the bread that God gives in Exodus does not give you that. It does sustain your life here and now. It doesn't give you the next thing. Mm-hmm. I see how that's annoying. <laughs> like it, it's kind of annoying. But, and one thing that Jesus is doing here is he's saying material bread matters, but it is not sufficient. 
to the bigger picture of things. Mm -hmm. So you need to eat bread. And, you know, I think that Jesus would say the same thing about the bread that he just miraculously gave the people in the first part of this chapter. Yeah. The miraculous bread that I gave you is great, but it's not going to sustain you forever. Like you are, you are going to die at the end of the day if, if that's all you have. And so you need something else, which is, which is me, is uh, uh, what he's saying. So this, we talked a little bit about the material and spiritual and sort of trying to not pull them apart, but hold them together. And I, in my mind, this is playing in that ballpark. That's a terrible metaphor, but you know what I mean? No, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's saying like the, the material things of life are not sufficient unto the task, even if they're miraculous. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you, th so am I understanding correctly that your reading of this is that something is now available that was not available to the ancestors? Like it's not that there was manna that would sustain their physical lives and there was some other access to a spiritual life, but instead that there, this is a new, a new offering. <laughs> that's an even worse metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably right. And I think it goes back to the conversation that we were just having. Yeah. That God does miraculous things that sustain people in the short term. God does that in the Hebrew scriptures. God does that in the New Testament. Jesus does that in this chapter. And those things are great, but those things are temporal, temporary. Mm -hmm. And one needs something more in order to, truly abide with God in the sense that John means eternal life. I think for John, that means Jesus. I think, you know, as we've been talking about, the essence of that is one somehow needs to internalize the Torah in ways that bring one to abide in God and God in them. For John, the only way to do that is Jesus. I think we could go back then and say there are other ways, and we just had that conversation about Ezekiel, that uh, a, a Jewish reader or a Jewish person of faith might conceptualize of that. John is not really interested in those alternative conceptions. He, he's sort of saying that, you know, yeah, the word, you need to imbibe the word. You need to, you need to consume the word and I am that word. So this, that last, again, it's that last move. So yeah. Does that make any sense? I feel like I'm sort of circling something I can't quite no, land the point. It no, I mean, I, it does, it does make sense. And I also find it annoying. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which, I, mean, I don't know if annoying is quite the right word. It's not that I don't believe that we need spiritual sustenance. Like, I certainly get that. I think that putting it in immediate juxtaposition with stories about the physical needs of our body, yeah. I think I, I'm not quite there with you yet that this text really honors both needs. Yeah. I think it kind of poo-poos the physical needs. Mm -hmm. and And that, I don't know, it— it just, it, it feels in some ways like, you know, when, I, when I'm meeting with, again, it reminds me of the healing stories. Like if we can just get to this point where you have spiritual sustenance, then these miracles that appear to defy nature are not required anymore. Like in some ways I feel like it's, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I do know what I'm trying to say, but I don't want to say it because I'm trying to be respectful and interfaith dialogue. <laughs> no, just say what I'm trying. Yeah. John I, Levinson feels, would say, right, you just need to say what you think and then let it be what it is, right? 
it feels like an easier promise because you don't actually have to deal with yeah. the suffering of our bodies on the earth. And you can yeah. just say, no, no, it's all going to be, yeah. it's all going to be okay. And it's all spiritual. And there is the spiritual. The spiritual is really, really true. Yeah. But I, I don't see how this story holds up both needs. I yeah. feel like this story is, is saying, forget the physical. Yeah. Let's talk about the spiritual. Yeah. No, I mean, what you're saying is exactly right, that if you read the story as saying physical bread doesn't matter, spiritual bread is all that matters, it absolutely floats off into space in some kind of spiritual reality or spiritual future that that disregards the material present. Where you and I think are disagreeing, and I, and I don't know that we're yeah. going to settle it. Yeah, yeah. Is that th- whether this text does that or not. Yeah. So where, what I want to take from what you said is it is a problem if somebody, if you read the text that way, it is a problem because it leads you to ignore actual suffering of actual people and say like, look, the spiritual bread is all you need. Mm-hmm. My point, rightly or wrongly, is that Jesus just got finished feeding physically, physically feeding people who are physically hungry. Mm-hmm. So he, he could have said, hey, y'all, stop complaining about being hungry. Like all you need is the bread of life, right? But he, but he didn't. He, he fed the people. Yeah. And, and in fact, he fed the people not by producing bread miraculously, but by, I mean, he did produce bread miraculously, but he worked with the five loaves and the two fish that the Mm -hmm. kid had. Mm -hmm. And so it is this sense of, you know, God, Jesus working the miracle based on what was already available, sustained the lives of the people and then said, that is not sufficient. He didn't, in my mind, he didn't say it's not important. He said, it's not sufficient, which is crucially different in my head to say yeah. we need to, we must attend to this physical needs of people and their physical hunger. And also that there is something deeper than that that is also necessary. Yeah. And I want to, okay, so so I, I want to move on soon because there's a lot to get through. And as we go into the next text, I want to think more about the sort of importance and like pressingness of of getting into this conversation through the lens of physical hunger and yeah. sort of what that what that does for us as, as humans. Yeah. But before I do that, is there anything that, that we really need to cover in this last section? Yeah, to me, that's exactly right. And the last line that you read in the previous section, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, is exactly making the transition that you're talking about. Right? Mm-hmm. This, this is not a spiritual bread that's somehow you know, intangible. It is a physical bread that is enfleshed in the way that the word became enfleshed. Now that raises a whole set of issues about what does it mean to eat flesh, which we're going to talk about. But in my mind, that statement is making the connection that we were just talking about between the sort of spiritual realities and the physical realities that can't be, in my mind, can't be separated according to this text. Hey everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. And do we have an exciting deal for you? This month, you can receive all the benefits of being a Bible Worm subscriber for the introductory price of just $4. Throughout the month of February, subscribers at any level will receive early access to episodes, as well as weekly liturgies and video lectures to accompany each podcast episode for the entire month. Plus, you'll get a terrific Bible Worm sticker that will make you the envy of your friends and family. There's no obligation, and you can cancel at any time. If you want to take advantage of this special offer, visit us at patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up at the Bibleworm supporter level for just $4 for the month. If you've always wondered what it's like to be a Bibleworm subscriber, we hope you'll join us in this special offer. And 
now, back to this week's episode. Okay. Let's see what happens next, Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) Buckle your seatbelt. Okay. Picking up in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father— So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So I think it would be easy and maybe appealing to jump immediately into metaphor. Yeah. This is a metaphor. We're Mm -hmm. not talking about ripping Jesus apart in the synagogue and eating him. But I don't want to I don't want to do that yet. And again, I think I think this is something that I learned from you that when there when we there's something that we think is a metaphor, yeah. We need to first treat it not like a metaphor. Like we first need to dive into all the resonances that it pulls up for us and all the all the power of it. And then if we train and then if we say, "Okay, yes, it's a metaphor, then let's jump into something else." But first we have to really inhabit yeah. All of that, this is extreme language. This is shocking. Yeah. And I feel like we have to sit in that real, like, in really intense imagery before yeah. we can, uh, before we can step out of it at all. I think that's probably right. I think that's a useful exercise. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is clearly metaphor, but the, like, what does the metaphor mean? I think it's an urgently important question. And the way to get at that is exactly as you're saying. The the other move that Christian readers and myself will make is like, oh, Jesus is talking about the Eucharist, right? We're talking about the Lord's Supper where we Mm -hmm. break bread and drink wine. And we are. But we're not only talking about that. John actually never tells us a story about that sort of last supper, as we'll see the further we go. And so it is shortchanging the story to simply say, oh, Jesus is talking about communion. Mm-hmm. your move that you're making, I think is right. Jesus is talking about eat me. <laughs> like he literally says, eat me and drink my blood. As many times as possible. Like yeah. he says it so many times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so we need to work through like, what does that mean? And then instead of saying like, oh, communion explains that, I think the right move is to say that helps us think about what communion is, yeah. which is very different. Yeah. Okay, so let's do it. So should we just... Should we just like go back and forth and say like what is some what is some response you have to like the literal yeah. language in this text? Where does it? I'm uh, so curious if I can because you know this is going to scandalize the listener, and mm. you I think are closer than I to an original reader of this text who doesn't have any sort of explanatory framework for like explaining away or making sense of whichever way you want to think about it. So I'm just curious, like, cause you, you have as much said as you are a little scandalized and offended by this text. What, when you read it and you're not thinking through sort of a mm-hmm. Christianized lens, what, what is, what does the metaphor do for you? Okay. So that, 
I mean, there definitely is a is a shock value to it. I mean, I just, it's funny. I just was meeting with some bat mitzvah students the other day, and we were looking at some texts from Leviticus, which, I mean, often, my experience is that often people who are not familiar with the sacrificial systems are pretty scandalized by those. Yeah. And I had to have this whole conversation with them, like, no, they're not talking about human sacrifice. Like, you would never do, you know, we're not talking about humans here. Yeah. Like, there's a whole other, there's a whole lo- other level of, horror associated with with that that is like nowhere <laughs> nowhere in the tradition um the emphasis on drinking blood is is certainly like counter to the the system of sacrifice that that Jews in that time would have been familiar with i mean it's really like explicitly prohibited to yeah. do that so like this is clearly like you know turning turning the system upside down you know, in some ways, it it has me thinking about about the whole system of like what we've talked about this before. I think reading texts like Leviticus, like mm-hmm. reading, well, I don't know if we've read Leviticus together, but the whole idea of of sacrifice and like the idea that you're sharing a meal with someone and how that like the the atoms that once made up this thing that was all one, that was maybe all one animal. Now they're divided between many people. And so those people have in some essential essence, like 1% of their body is the same Mm -hmm. because they have ingested this, this living, Mm -hmm. once living creature. And the idea in sacrifice is that you can share food with a deity, which is weird in its own way. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Bobby, reading my notes here are crazy. But then coming into actually eating the deity, mm-hmm. but it's like a bottomless bowl of deity that you <laughs> go around forever. Yeah. Like is really weird and shocking. Like I almost I don't want to keep reading this text because I want it to stay as shocking. Yeah. as it is. Yeah. There that's the there, there's my there's my response to this. Text. Yeah. No, that that was so helpful, and I, I I there's a lot to think about in in all of that response. Where, where my head first went in terms of thinking about eating a common animal was to the Passover lamb, which is not exactly a sacrifice, but it is a shared meal mm-hmm. that one does with one's community. And we have already talked about in John's Gospel, mm-hmm. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, and we we talked about the possibility, which I which I think is a good one, that the lamb in mind there is the Passover lamb. And so, like, I think that that m- metaphor is, is ex- I mean, a really interesting one to pursue. Like, in what way is eating Jesus like eating the Passover lamb? And mm-hmm. that shared communal experience, the identification of who the people are. Like, it's not simply painting the blood on the door, but it is also consuming the lamb. There, there's a communal, communitarian nature to it. I think, like, I don't quite know where that goes, but I think that's a really interesting line of thought. The other issue about what does it mean to eat a deity (laughs) uh, and not just a lamb. In my mind, what's happening there is if you eat Jesus, then Jesus satisfies your need for consumption. Now, I think if I ate a person, I probably would never eat again, you know, so like. (laughs) They are satisfied your need. There's one sense, but I, you know, um, if you kind of step one sort of a, a shimmy back from the metaphor 
to yeah. say the intake of this deity. And Jesus in the previous chapter, or I forget exactly where it was, but ha- has said, it's in, the, it's in the Samaritan woman story, I think, where they offer him bread and Jesus says, to yeah. do the work of my father is, is the bread that I eat. There is this sense that uh, the idea of bread here is, is about what motivates your life, what keeps you moving, what fills you up. And so here to intake Jesus is that. And the idea that it is flesh to me is really important. The language here is different than we get in other places where it's, this is my body. Luke says, this is my body broken for you. John says flesh very clearly. And it's the same word, Sarks, that's used in the word became flesh back in the prologue. And so in my mind, what is satisfying to people is to take in the enfleshed life of Jesus. That is not just the sort of spiritual idea of Jesus, but the way that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected in the body is to, to take that in. And that becomes the sort of thing that animates your life. The contrast to, f- to food then, like to physical bread then, becomes part of the reality of human nature is that we are perpetually driven by consumption. And in some ways that's perfectly healthy, right? We need food to live. But you and I know enough, being who we are and living where we live, that consumption drives people in all kinds of ways. And the pursuit of bread, the making, making the king the one who can give you bread, there is a whole world of hurt that opens up when you go that way. And so for Jesus to say, if you take me in and let me abide in you and, I will, uh, and you will abide in me and I will abide in you, then your drive for consumption will be satisfied is a really interesting idea in a consumer society where you know, our, our impulse is to always, always, always take in more and more and more. And this is saying, you need, you need to take in the enfleshed reality of me and that will be, that will break the consumer cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I probably went a little further there than, than your question. No, invited, I actually but. really like where, where that, where that ended. And I think that is really resonant for, for the world that I live in. That is where there are appetites to consume things that are really far beyond yeah. what one needs. I think where I struggle is putting it in the context of people who are starving in a desert or people who are, you know, like, no, no, they actually, you know, and this goes back to the point that we keep circling around where you're saying it's, he's not saying one or the other. And, and I keep saying, no, I think I keep saying one or the other, but yeah, I think you and I are on the same page that it, it makes no sense to pretend that need doesn't exist to, you know, care for that, care for the physical body. And also we, we want more from that. And if our life is only yeah. figuring out how to meet our perpetual physical needs, yeah. <laughs> some of which are real and some of which are imagined, yeah. it's going to be disappointing. No, that's exactly right. But and and once again, to point back to the beginning of this chapter and you know why these two things together, part of the enfleshed life of Jesus that we are in taking, if we follow John here is the life of Jesus that made food freely available to a mass of hungry people without concern for the cost. It is an enfleshed existence that made plenty where the world wants to work in scarcity. And so if you read the whole chapter together, I think where you end up is part of consuming Jesus is living out the way Jesus lived in the world, which is to provide food miraculously from heaven. Like, 
to not miraculously from heaven. I shouldn't have said it that way. Provide miraculously multiply food brought to him by a little boy who had some food that he was willing to share. Mm-hmm. And so this is how I get to the, this is not trying to separate them. It's trying to say, if you eat Jesus, <laughs> then it makes you live in the world in a certain kind of way. Part mm-hmm. of the way of mm-hmm. living in the world we just saw in this chapter is meeting the physical needs of people with abundance and not wanting to then turn that into the reason that you get to be the king. Well, I'm glad we sorted all that out. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. I feel like there's a million other things we could say about that section. And also, we still have another 10 verses to go. We do. And the narrative lectionary may have been wise in ending at They verse may have been 59. wise in cutting us off there. Yeah. yeah. But we are, we are resistant and we are going to press on. We are not wise. Yeah. We are less wise. Okay. So we're going to pick up in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this defend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you, there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Even even the disciples, it doesn't say they were, compl- well, it does eventually say they were complaining about it, mm-hmm. but they were like, whoa. Like, <laughs> yeah. This is, how, how, how can we accept this yeah. teaching? It is so out, it is so, it is as crazy as the idea that you should tear up your leader and eat their body. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually feel a little empathy for Jesus here when, when he says, if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before, like, then you would, then you would know. Like, it reminds me of these situations where, you know, it's, it, people, you know, you know, you're telling the truth, but people don't believe you yeah. and there's nothing, and they're talking smack about you yeah. and there's nothing you can do to make them believe it and you just wish that like the heavens would open up and say it's true (laughs) you know like but but there's nothing you can do so I have very like human to human empathy for for Jesus here yeah I, I really appreciate that and I think the reason I think this section is so important is because it tells us that what was just said is scandalous and it made a lot of people turn away and in and in fact the disciples when Jesus says, do you also want to leave? Simon doesn't say, no, we love it here. Yeah. <laughs> Simon says, there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Which is that's right. a more muted response. I mean, it's right. acknowledging on the one hand that, you know, as far as this gospel is concerned, Jesus is the only thing on offer. Like that's the only way to live the life that yes. you're called to live. But it does not say this is a wonderful thing and we're so glad we're doing it. It says this is a hard thing, and maybe we wish we could go someplace else, 
but we right. realize that there isn't any, there's nothing for us anywhere else. So this is, we're going to stay here. I just like that combination of sort of the range is from scandalized to like, we don't have any choice about it. It's right. like a, a really interesting range. And if you stop in verse 59, you sort of think like, oh yeah, that's nice. And this yeah. is not nice. It just isn't. Right. It's hard for everybody who hears it. And if it's not hard for us, I think we're doing, I think we're doing it wrong. I think we're not hearing it. Yeah. yeah. And I have to wonder, you know, knowing all the times that the disciples didn't quite get what Jesus was talking about here and that the shock of the imagery that Jesus is using and like, I really like the initial complaint of the disciples here who is just like, this teaching is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what what do we do with this? Yeah. So I see it not even as like, you know, Simon Peter is like, we don't like this, but we don't have another choice. But sort of like, I really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Either I don't know what you're talking about, or I literally think you're saying we have to eat you. And I don't, like, I don't know what to do with any of this, but I don't, there's nowhere else for me to go. Yeah. So I'm going to stay here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that word harsh there is so interesting. And whether it means, like in the in the Greek, it's- Where is it? Uh, this message is harsh in verse 60. What's uh, the inner, yeah. what's the NRSV? Difficult? This teaching is difficult. Yeah. So the, the Greek there is skleros, which means hard or harsh, mm-hmm. which I think can mean difficult mm-hmm. to understand, but I think it can mm-hmm. also mean difficult to live out. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and so that sense of like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I think that's part of it. And then the sense of like, how could you possibly live out whatever, what you're saying right now? It's too hard. I think, I think if you kind of hold those two together, maybe that's sort of where, where we're supposed to end up. It's a difficult thing to understand and, an, and a really hard thing to live out. And yet that's what Jesus seems to be telling them that they should be doing. Yeah. Jesus comes back in verse 65 to this thing that he's said previously. For this reason, I said to you that none can come to me unless the Father enables them to do so. Mm -hmm. And I think in light of what we've just said, that sort of puts a different spin on that a little bit. Like the the following of Jesus is so difficult that nobody would choose to do it of their own accord. Maybe they're too scandalized. Maybe it's too harsh. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe they don't understand. And so there's a sense in which the only way any of us actually follow this way is because, truly follow this way, is because God has empowered us to do so. And that, among other things that that might do, it takes away a little bit a sense of being proud of ourselves, if we are, because we have chosen to follow Jesus. And I sort of said, like, it's not, it it wasn't you that made that choice. It was that God moved you in a way that enabled that to be possible. It's helpful for me to think about that move in light of the way you were talking about more thinking about this text in the context of our own consumerist culture and sort of the ways that it is so all encompassing and that um, your religious community might encourage you to fight against it. But it's really, it's, it's like a day-to-day thing. You know, it's, it's really, it's really hard to do. Yeah, that, that's a helpful lens for me, I think, looking at this. Yeah. Okay. Good gracious, friend. Where 
Where do you land? Where do you land on this text? The place where I've come down, and I mean, I've been sort of talking about this the whole the whole time, and so it's not going to be any big surprise, is that what this text is talking about is an alternative way of life in the world that is possible when you have taken Jesus in in a way that becomes an integral part of your life. Your life force is generated from drinking the living water and eating the bread come down from heaven, uh, which is Jesus's flesh. And that changes who you are and the way that you live in the world. For me, this is both a spiritual transformation. So when I read, I think we've talked about this, when I read spirit and flesh in the New Testament generally, but in John as well, I'm reading on the one hand, you know, spirit and flesh kind of literally, but also spirit as the ways of the kingdom of God and flesh as the ways of human nature or the empire of Rome or however you want to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's Jesus's flesh, it is the way Jesus is embodied in human reality to me is crucially important because it's not simply this kind of like spiritual way of being in the world that changes the way we think or changes the way we believe in our hearts, but it is a physical reality that changes the way we live in the world. Our enfleshedness is now different. We are enfleshed with Christ rather than being enfleshed in the ways of the world. And so it does things to us. Like it, it transforms the way that we inhabit the world. It means that when we encounter people who don't have anything to eat, like in the first part of this text, instead of thinking like, wow, that's going to cost a lot of money. How can we do that? We think the, the resources of God are infinite. And if we can just pull together the meager loaves and fish that we have, we can feed the multitude. It taking in Jesus in this way changes us. It changes our enfleshedness with a new with a new way of being in the world based in Jesus's spirit. And so we can't any longer just be consumers of the world. We can't any longer follow the one who offers us bread. We can't try to make kings of the people who give us material well-being. We have to do something different embodied in the life of Jesus as it is told to us in the Gospel of John. For me, the reason that people leave at the end is because that's a really hard thing to do. And, and deeply, deeply, deeply countercultural to say instead of, you know, living in this world that's given to us by a consumerist economy, we're going we're gonna to live in a world in which we're satisfied by having Jesus and abiding in Jesus and Jesus abiding in us. And that's going to make us generous. And that's going to make us, you know, look out for people and their well-being in the world instead of trying to consume for ourselves. That's it's a scandalous thing to say. And in my mind, that's why those disciples leave. It's because they suddenly have realized that this is going to change the whole way that I am in the world. It's, it's going to mean that I have to be born again from above and from the Spirit, and they can't handle it. And I think many of us, if we really think about it, would not be able to handle it either. And so we either don't read this text, or we sort of think about, we think about our spiritual life as separate from our, our material life, and so we don't have to, to deal with the scandal of, of this text. But when we eat bread and drink blood, <laughs> which is in the Christian context, the taking of the Lord's Supper, we do it. I don't, in my church, we do it every week. Some places you do it every quarter, whatever, whatever it might be. When we do that, what we are saying is we agree to do this, right? We, we agree 
that the life that's going to live out in us is the life of the enfleshed Jesus and not the, the life of the world as it is given to us. And so we're making a radical claim. Whether we really mean it or not, I don't know. But if we really mean it, then it ought to radically change the way we inhabit the world. That's beautiful. And it, it, it really does make me think more back to Ezekiel than to, you know, sacrificial texts or mm-hmm. other things like that. But the idea of, of being able to have the essence of God's teaching in the closest form that it inhabits the earth, like in your body, like planting a seed mm-hmm. that can sustain you or can, you know, just direct, will change you, will fundamentally yeah. sort of alter who you are. I know you have been struggling with this text and a little bit struggling with my kind of materialist (laughs) reading of this text. So I'm curious where you have ended up. I mean, I think there's a lot in this text that's really hard for me. Yeah. And what I most appreciate about this text is that the, the very weirdness of it brings me right back to Jewish teachings that were developing around that time and about about the sacredness about bringing the sacred into the mundane about yes. bringing god to the presence of your table this sort of mundane continue you know as we said like the body needs continuous fuel so you're you're going to be eating yeah regardless whatever religion you are you are actually going to be eating stuff you know and and sometimes when uh, christians or people who are not very familiar with judaism have wanted to ask sort of the first question of Judaism they want to ask is what do you think happens after you die? Yeah. You know, what do you believe about the afterlife? And, and I I have always said like, look, it's not that Jews don't have beliefs about what happens after you die. Like I can tell you what you, you know, some of the Jewish beliefs about that, but it's not a central question. So my question in turn is what do Christians think about how we ought to eat? Which, again, like, could you derive some Christian teachings about how to Sure, you could, but it's not, like, sort of sort of front and center. And I think some of the, the ways that you are talking about how, how this sort of ritual act of communion or of, of thinking about ingesting God in this way should— absolutely show up in your material life. I think, I think that's exactly what the Jewish community does with laws about what foods you do or don't eat and blessings that need to be said before eating different kinds of things that was happening in the sacrificial system before this other rabbinic system was developed. And so in some ways I feel like it is, it's a really different way of going about the whole, the endeavor because it's much more, I don't, I don't, it is much more tied into the everyday need to consume mm-hmm. and how we tie that need into the divine. But I'm really, I don't know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the metaphor and still like frustrated. You know, I, I, I'm one of the people at the end of the story that's like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think the fact that both Judaism at this time, at the time of John and Christian, you know, early rabbinic Judaism and Christianity are, really recognizing how we've got to tie our hungers into our connection to God and also recognize the ways in which they're real and we have to address them, but but to think beyond just our animalistic, quote-unquote animalistic physical needs yeah. is, is interesting and compelling and some good 
common ground for interfaith conversation. Yeah, that's really well said. And I mean, you're right. I think that a lot of North American Christianity for a long time has tended to focus on like, what's the state of your eternal soul in a way that often ignores the day-to-day material reality of the present, other than like, you shouldn't drink or smoke or have sex or or whatever, like kind (laughs) of a flip way of thinking about ethics. Where I think we're both sort of headed is you out of your tradition and me out of my tradition are trying to say, no, no, like Mm -hmm. what's really Mm -hmm. important in this sort of kingdom of heaven thing is how do we all live together in in the daily world? And and how do we live in a way that's alternative to the ways that are that are mm-hmm. the consumerist ways that are given to us? And mm-hmm. your tradition does that, and my tradition does that, and there's a long way we can we can go there. Yeah, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to get a lot farther than no, that, no. but it's yeah, it's a it's a fascinating and compelling text that I imagine will be turning over in my mind for a while. So, what are we doing next time? Next time, we move to just one chapter ahead, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52, which the narrative lectionary describes as living water. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. Sounds exciting. All right. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for um, sending me a Xanax before we started this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's good. It's good. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate it. See you next time. Bye. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagley. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. Special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest sponsors, Sarah Sanderson Dotty and Ryan Huff. Join us again next week for John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. Until then, keep on digging.